On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving, at your desk, maybe at the gym, but you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach and see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I'm your co-host, Andrew Mensel. Joining me is Paul Dennett. Paul, how are you? Great. Great to see you again, Menas. It's been a long time since I've seen your glorious face. Yeah, it's great to have you back in studio. And uh, as we record this, there's 50 or 60 Australian cricketers in quarantine at the moment preparing for the cricket season. You've got Shield players, WBBL players, administrators, all bunkered down, ready to provide some cricket for us. So that's cheered me up, knowing that it's on the horizon. What a different world we live in. I mean, if you listened to the podcast from a year ago and heard that, you'd think, what are they talking about? But it's become the norm so quickly that to use the term bubble and quarantine around cricketers. We're an adaptable um, species, aren't we, humans? It's gone from um, something that would never have been thought of to um, de rigueur. Absolutely. And the irony is, you know, if you and I were in, in lockdown for two weeks in a hotel room, we would be watching back-to-back cricket matches. You'd be on YouTube watching highlights from the last 50 years. But I, I guarantee most of these cricketers are not watching any cricket while they're in lockdown. Well, you can't. If you, if you watch too much cricket, by definition. If you're a cricketer and you watch too much cricket. You're no good. Exactly. <laughs> All right, so in this edition of Cricket Unfiltered, we're going to pay tribute to the late Dean Jones, one of our favourite players. We are welcoming the chief cricket writer for the Australian newspaper, Pete Lawler, onto the show to go through all the big cricket news. And then we'll wrap up the cricket headlines. And to finish off, we've got Can't Let It Go. So let's get into it, and we'll begin with our tribute to Dean Jones. The Australian cricket champion, Dean Jones, Uh, has died of a massive heart attack, according to uh, sources. Jones was part of the Star Sports commentary team. So he's hit that, it's going straight down the ground, will it be over? It's six, a beautiful shot from Dean Jones. Just short of a length it was, and he heaved it over the boundary of square leg, just what the doctor ordered. I can hear that you're emotional, um, AB, and I understand why it's making me really emotional too. The outpouring I've not seen in such a long time was such a shock. Great Victorian, great Australian, and, and a good mate. Hadley has been brought back. Splendid stroke. I know there'll be a lot of people who'll throw out their hands in horror at seeing a stroke like that because they'll say it's not... A test match stroke. Well, it's not meant to be. A glorious piece of cricket. Beautiful shot. That's a huge six over the ball. It's a magnificent shot. What a shot. More of that, please, Dean Jones. And then Captain Biggles gets on. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Heathrow. Six degrees outside. And I want to wish the Australian cricket team all the best. Because I know they'll do very well. Because David Boone has just broken the record. 52 cans. From Sydney to London. Everyone has just gone off, except Bob Simpson, who's gone purple with rage. And I walked up to Simo and I said, Coach, how unprofessional is that? <laughs> of David Byrne, I, 
I send him home, I'll bat three, won't be a problem. And he said to me, Dino, you were pissed before you landed in Singapore. Shut the shit up. So... And there it is. Well played, Dean Jones. Back-to-back hundreds. Just what the doctor ordered. Very happy young man, and rightly so. Australia were really in the three for 70, Jones. Some memories there of Dean Jones. For both Menas and for me, he played an enormous part in our early interest in cricket. And Menas, he was your first kind of favourite player, I think. Yeah, he was. Uh, I absolutely loved him as a kid. The way he used to bat, the the running between the wickets, the energy on the field, the bravado. As a youngster, he was just such a compelling character. He just brought me into the game. He was one of the first real players that... I um, just loved watching, and his death was such a shock to, for him to have a, a massive heart attack and, and die suddenly at the age of 59. It really caught me by surprise. I think it caught the whole cricket community by surprise because he was still, you know, working. It just, it just, just came out of nowhere. Yeah, and I've heard others say that he sort of embodied youthfulness. He, you always think of Dean Jones as so athletic and uh, aggressively charging the bowler and full of life and full of vigour. And I think for me, it also um, brings back sadness, just to sort of happy memories of my childhood, and, and you know, as that recedes into the past. That for so many summers, I, I think of lovely, happy times at the beach or at the pool, uh, coming back in the Christmas holidays, turning on the TV in a one-day game, Australia three for fifty or something. But Jones is already starting to motor, and he was the the, the guy that really gave Australian cr- cricket its its swagger back. A lot of people who are a bit younger might not realise just how low Australian cricket had sunk to. That from sort of early 84 to early 87, I think, is the probably the worst three years in Australia's cricketing history. Um, and then Alan Border was the, the one star in the side. Then a, a great side began to emerge. And, and probably Dean Jones was the number one of those that that really helped lift the Australian side. And for me, one of the interesting stories is, is a story that's told by Alan Border of the actual low point of their um, of that period, which was the Boxing Day Test match of um, 1986. Australia were absolutely thrashed by England in about three days, and they were sitting having a few beers at the MCG. The England players came in, and they were watching the tennis because Australia was playing the Davis Cup final down the road at Kuyong, and Pat Cash was down two sets to love in the in the final of the Davis Cup to Sweden to Michael Pernfors, and Cash made this amazing comeback, and Border said how the Aussies were all cheering on Cash. The English, of course, chose to cheer on the Swede, and when Cash ended up winning, it sort of gave them all a bit of a lift, and then um, they watched as the presentation was made, and Bob Hawke said something about Cash's courage and his resilience and then added something, we could have used a bit of that at the MCG today. And Border said that the players all chucked their empty beer cans at the TV and there was a bit of anger, but they realised that Hawke was right. And he sort of said that he and a few other players, including Dean Jones, used that as sort of their line in the sand moment and that, um, you know, you can make too much of these things because obviously things had been improving. They'd been getting lots of new talent into the side and Bob Simpson was, was improving the side. But the next test was really the start of that resurgence. And it was it was led by Dean Jones, that in that next test, he got um, 184 not out, uh, out of a total of only 343, so he scored more than half the runs for Australia. Australia won that test, the final test of the Ashes, a consolation victory, 
But everything from then went on the up and up. They won the 87 World Cup totally unexpectedly, Jones playing a leading role. They then started to compete against the West Indies. The the summer of 88-89, Jones scored a a magnificent double century. And then they won the Ashes back in 89 with, again, Dean Jones playing a leading role. So as I said, he was the one. And he gave that that confidence. There are other decent cricketers around, but they didn't have the that jump down the wicket and smash the bowler and really um, drive the popularity. For a while there in the mid, in the late 80s and early 90s, he was the number one most popular cricketer in Australia. There's no doubt about that. Absolutely. My first bat was a Dean Jones uh, county bat, I remember. And I think as well, you know, you talk about the rebuild of Australian cricket. You know, Dino did embody that in the sense that he was athletic. He worked hard on his fielding. He ran hard between the wickets. You know, he really was integral to the sort of Bob Simpson era and the rebirth of Australian cricket. Um, you know, the the irony there is eventually, you know, Bob Simpson had enough of him and turfed him out probably a few years too early. And and that's sort of, I guess, some of the lingering, um, you know, feelings I have. Not not so much about Dino's... Um, Test mission when he was, you know, just turned 30 and had so much good cricket ahead of him, but also the fact that we never really appreciated his coaching in Australia in the last few years. And the thing that stood out was that he applied for the Renegades job last year and he wasn't even given an interview. He wasn't even given an interview by Cricket Victoria, despite the fact not only is he one of their greatest cricketers, but he's also led um, Islamabad United to two um, PSL, Pakistan Super League titles. So he was eminently qualified for it. And, and I feel that we we wasted his talents in that sense, not getting him into coaching. And I, I've definitely said it in the podcast before Dean passed away. Um, but, yeah, it's one of those lingering things that I feel we never really appreciated him enough. It's sad as well that Langer was saying that he was going to get Jones in to be a mentor for the Australian T20 side ahead of the World Cup, which would have been great. And he certainly was appreciated in, in Pakistan and in India. But in uh, after his death, I was looking at the trending topics on Twitter in Pakistan. And if anything, it was even uh, more prominent than it was in Australia because of his uh, success in, in the Pakistan Super League and the fact that he embraced uh, going back to Pakistan when some people from the Western world weren't so keen to do so. It, it's remarkable when you look back at his record. And um, uh, I, I'm sure I've been guilty of this. If you'd asked me to name an Australian best side of the 1990s, uh, I, I might have been had to be prompted. What about Dean Jones? Oh yeah, I forgot about him. That you know he was he, he he kind of went off the radar a little bit. Yet when you look at his record, uh, fifty two tests, batting average of forty six point five five. Those are fantastic numbers. One day average of forty four point six, and crucially, the first class average of fifty one point nine. I mean those numbers are they're almost as good as as anyone. Um, and then when you look as well. I'm just pulled down another couple of numbers here, and I know that numbers aren't the only things, and certainly with Dean Jones, there's much, much more to the numbers, but the numbers are worth looking at, that during his test career, so from 1984 to 1992, um, in that in that period when he played, he had the third best average of any Australian. So Alan Border 54, Mark Taylor, 49, and Dean Jones, as I said, 46.55. So he had a better average than Boone, than Vessels, than Steve Waugh, than Mark Waugh, Jeff Marsh. Uh, so... Um, you know, for him to have been dropped at that time was was quite remarkable. And as you say, uh, Menas, the one-day record, I mean, he's got the, if you look at it, he's got the, the fifth-best average in one-day cricket in the history of, of Australian one-day cricket. And when you look at all the other names on that list at the top of the list, none of them played in the 1980s. He, he, was, he had a, an average that 
would stand up today in an era when, you know, great players like um, Steve Waugh and Alan Border were averaging vastly lower in one-day cricket. You've got to go down to 17th on the list to find another player who played in the 1980s, and that's Greg Chappell. So that's how good he was at one-day cricket. So in addition to charging down the wicket and, and scoring quickly and, and, and you know, revolutionising the game, his pure numbers are, are really, really second to none almost. Yeah, absolutely. Some of the things that stand out to me from Dino are his batting technique was just beautiful, so silky and elegant. He was very conventional in his technique. His father was a very good grade cricketer, and uh, he coached his son, and he, he just had a beautiful technique. And even watching the highlights since his passing, even when he's smashing balls all over the Gabba against England, he's still playing through the line, hitting straight. Yep. You know, he's, he was never a slogger. And and I always used to try and bat like him. The way Dean Jones used to just whip the ball off his toes um, into the onside or the way he'd drive through covers, it was just so technically correct and um, he'd play with such a nice straight back. It really was a such an elegant technique, one of the best I've ever seen. And, um, I, you know, I've never seen anyone bat quite like him. You mentioned his double hundred against the West Indies in the 1988-89 summer. I remember that very well because Australia had been absolutely torn apart by the Windies that year and almost embarrassed at points. In the MCG test in Boxing Day, uh, Kurtley Ambrose just destroyed us. And we get to Adelaide and you're thinking, here we go again. And, and Dino made a, a brilliant double hundred when no one was scoring runs against the West Indies. So a truly memorable innings and one that I'll never forget. I also think Dino was ahead of his his time in the way he, he talked about the Aussie team culture in the dressing room. He, he's quite publicly said that, you know, when he got into the Victorian and Australian sides, there was no sort of helping by the senior players of the younger players. You were kind of just thrown in there and it was not just sink or swim, but uh, the senior players would make it difficult for you at times. And and he was ahead of his time in saying that he thought that wasn't the right way to do it. And we've seen in the last you know, 15 or 20 years, the dressing room culture evolved within the Australian side to, to be more inclusive and, and actually welcome in people from all cultures and, and um, different characters. It, it used to be you sort of had to fit the mould or you weren't accepted. And I think that Dean had a, a big influence in changing that. Another thing we haven't touched on yet because it's touched on everywhere is his wonderful double century in the tied test match in, in 1986. I think everyone knows the story of the, of the, of the courage of that innings. For me, a, a personal memory, um, well, a couple. One, he was my grandmother's favourite player. She absolutely loved Dean Jones, would never hear a bad word said about him. And, um, and I, think, I think that you know, she probably wasn't the biggest cricket fan, but it was, it was someone like him that drew her to the game, which I'm sure he did with others as well. And I remember... In the summer of 84, 85, just as I was starting to, to really get interested in cricket and, and during that period where Australia were at their worst, uh, one successful game Australia had was against uh, Sri Lanka in Adelaide. Border got 118 not out. Jones got 99, got to 99 not out. Um, he motored from 50 to 99 and it was, it was like watching modern day cricket back in the mid-80s. It was, it was remarkable the number of sixes that he was hitting. And <laughs> amusingly, off the last ball, um, all he needed was a single to get his century. Um, and it was down the leg side. He missed it. 
they scampered through for a bye and then turned around to see that the umpire, and they didn't always call wides automatically down the leg side that time. The umpire had his arms outstretched and it was a wide, which back then you didn't get an extra run. Um, these days you get two, but that time there was pointless running the, the, the bye because they would have got the run for the wide. So the whole ground was you know in heartache at the agony of Dean Jones being being stranded of 99 not out. But it just seemed um, remarkable that two players could almost go and score a century uh, in the same one in the same one day game. So, yeah, there's plenty of very happy memories that I have of him in my childhood. Yeah, same. I remember being absolutely mortified when Dean Jones was playing the West Indies in 1991 and was bowled off a no ball, and he started walking off, and he hadn't seen the call by the umpire, and the West Indies fielders decided to be unsportsmanlike and run him out. <laughs> And, and and that was actually against the rules at the time. But I remember for days and days and days I was upset about that. I mean, 20 years later I'm still talking about it. Well, it wouldn't happen today because the umpires are better these days. That It's one of the things that, oh, you're a bit of a nerd, you read every rule. Well, the umpires should have known the rule. The, you know, that was a, a nonsensical decision. I remember, I remember that as well. I'm still a bit angry about that <laughs> <laughs> all these years later. So I guess um, I want to just sort of speak to some of the listeners out there that, Who've, who've reached out and said how upset they were to hear about the passing of Dean Jones. And I guess from my point of view a while ago, my father passed away in the same circumstances and I got that call that, you know, he's passed away. And so, I, I, you know, I really feel for Dean Jones's family and friends getting that sudden shocking news must be awful, but also the fans that have reached out and expressed how much he meant to them and how sad it, it made them feel. It, it's a couple of things. It's the shock of it. It's the suddenness of it. The fact that it was unexpected is very upsetting, but also the, the he's really the first of that sort of generation of cricketers to pass away. Uh, in that you sort of, I used to have the 1989 Ashes tour poster up on my wall um, for ten years, and, and they were all like gods to me. They were just these amazing, amazing cricketers and people. And you know, for one of them to pass away, it is it is a sad, sad moment. And I think you, as you touched on before, it's a little bit of that sadness of your childhood and everything ebbing away. But it is also the reality that. Um, you know, we've lost one of our true heroes. I remember that poster of 89. A friend had it up on his wall, and I, I remember distinctly looking at it. And I don't know why I thought this, but I remember thinking, that will never age. That looks so modern um, and so fresh and vibrant. I could never imagine that receding into history. And yet, of course, um, it now has. Another sort of sad sort of memory of uh, uh, this time is I happened to see the other day the highlights of the the last game of the 83-84 summer, which is the first summer I can ever remember, and it was also the first summer that Dean Jones broke into the, the side. Australia lost the game, and the last ball, uh, there was lots of cheering in the crowd for Rod Marsh because it was his farewell game for Australia. And as they walked off, everyone's embracing Rod Marsh. And then this incredibly young-looking Dean Jones, even younger than I can remember him, so young and thin and, and slight, ran up behind him and gave him a big hug, which almost seemed inappropriate because he'd only just come into the side. It was like... Come on, Dino, you haven't you haven't, you haven't earned the right to hug Rod Marsh like that. But Ian Chappell sort of made the point in commentary, you know, and the next generation um, uh, paying tribute to Rod Marsh as well. And it's just, it is so heartbreakingly sad that someone who just seems um, to be forever young has died. Um, but uh, as, as you do in these times, you, you have to look at the, the happy memories and that there are thousands and thousands of happy memories that millions of Australians had of, of, of his performances in the late 80s and into the early 90s of, as I said, being the, along with Border, the, the real 
star of the side and, and whether it was Test cricket or one-day cricket playing in that inimitable way that uh, made people want to watch the game. And I'm very glad that Dean Jones was inducted into the Australian Cricket Hall of Fame while he was still alive. I'm glad that he got that recognition was and was around to see it. And the tributes that have flowed in the last few weeks have really been fitting of the legacy he's left on the game. And uh, I just, you know, he'll be someone that I will never forget. Welcome back to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I'm Menas. I'm with Paul. And joining us on the line now, we have the excellent chief cricket writer from the Australian, Pete Lawler. Pete, how are you? Oh, I'm excellent. <laughs> <laughs> we just yeah. um, we just spoke about Dean Jones and paid a mm. tribute to him. Obviously, very mm. sad um, that he passed away. What are your memories of Dean Jones? Yeah, um, well... Like, like, I think like all people of a certain age, and, and particularly being a Victorian, Dean Jones was kind of the, the light on the hill in cricket for us. You know, he was, uh, he brought he brought an excitement and an electricity and an aggression and a kind of craziness to cricket that had at that point, and I may be very wrong in this, but this is how I remember it, being a, a doer game, you know. I had come into the game with the excitement of Dennis Lilly and people like that, but then we went through that awful on our hands and knees in the AB era, you know, of just trying to hang in there. Dino was a rock star. He made cricket fun. Um, you know, he painted, he, he hinted at what one day cricket would become um, because he was well ahead of the curve on that, and he was clearly made for that terrible T20 thing that was mm. um, something further down the road. They are my childhood memories of him. Um, and I'll even tell you something. When I was a young reporter, uh, my girlfriend went to interview Dino. And this is how much I loved him. I ran down to the um, picture files at the Herald and Weekly Times and grabbed a photo of Dino you know, dancing down the pitch and hitting a six somewhere or other in the world. And asked her to, to um, get it autographed for me, but I wanted spe- specific words on it, and they were, "To Pete, thanks for the batting tips, Dino." <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was a prized possession in my life for a long time. Um, and but look, and later, yeah, because my life has gone on for a very, very long time, um, I got to know him really well in the press box, and Dino was just one of those. most generous, open people you will ever encounter. He would talk to anyone and everyone. He had this mind that was was crazy with cricket ideas and he wanted to talk to you about them and he he wanted to listen to what you say and tell you what he thought. And and he had dossiers of what he thought about this and that and you could never come off air. You know, I often do um, Jared Waitley's program down there in Victoria um, and whatever, you know, generally, I, if I'd made some statements about cricket on it, there'd be a ding and there'd be Dino. <laughs> Love what you just said. Have you thought this? And there would just be this text that was as long as a Russian novel uh, with all <laughs> Dino's ideas. Somebody said, I think it was Warney said, you know, he'd have 10 ideas on every topic, but you'd come away thinking about two of them because often they were mad, like, you know, if you win the 17th over, 
you win you win a T twenty game or something like that. Or <laughs> you, you know, if you ask if you ask that big West Indian guy to take his uh, wristbands off, everything's going to be better. Um, <laughs> sometimes it didn't always work out really well, but some of them were really good. And I'd refer you back to that article that he wrote on how to fix the BBL. Was that? last year or something like that. He, he had a great mind on all those sorts of things. and So I loved his company and I cherish one moment. And I put this picture up on um, Twitter, I think, the day after he died. I didn't – it was – or a couple of days after. It was in a pub, I think it was Grosvenor or something, in Perth. And Dino was there after a day's play and he had something with him. And I said, what's that? And it was the bag that uh, Albion had done up for the baggy green cap that they were presenting – to all the past players with their cap, with their test number embroidered on this fantastic, it was a pouch, a baggy green pouch. And Dino pulled it out and he was so proud of it, you know. I said, oh, I'll take a photo. He said, oh, yeah, please, please. And, you know, he posed with it at the bar and wanted to talk about it. And he loved talking about his, his, his cricket career. And I always enjoyed listening to him talk about it. It, it, it was a really good – I loved his company and, and I'm really sad that he's dead, to be honest. Yeah, the same. Uh, I, you know, as a kid, I, I was such a passionate Dean Jones fan that I actually bought a signed Victorian cap, a signed Dean Jones Victorian cap, even though I'm a proud New South Welshman. Um, oh. So that's how much I loved him. Um, um, that makes me very uncomfortable, Manners. I think things like that should be repatriated. That's kind of like, <laughs> like the Asian mark, you know, it's like plundering another state's cultural heritage. I think yeah. you should give it back. Yeah, or give it to me. The other yeah. memory that I have of just of late of looking back at his career, and I felt this at the time, but maybe time has dimmed it, but he was so hard done by. You look at his numbers, averaging over 50 in first-class cricket, averaging almost 47 in test matches, and obviously they don't just do him justice. But um, do you have any thoughts about why he was uh, excluded from the side when he was and whether that was a mistake? Yeah, I, hang on. I, I'm struggling with a lot of emotions right now. I think I'm going to put on Mahalia Jackson and raise my arms in the air and say, at last everybody else understood what every Victorian knew <laughs> he was terribly he was poorly treated i mean he, he was he had a ridiculously good average when he was dropped he should have played much more cricket but uh and every victorian knew that i mean when, when they baptized us it was in the water and it got in it got into the frontal lobe um and he might be the first person from another state who's ever admitted it <laughs> so that, i felt the same at the time i think a yeah, certain yeah. cricket coach at the time um had had enough of Dino. That's my understanding of the situation. Dean was a difficult guy, and I, I, I wrote a uh, – trying to remember yeah, – move on pretty quickly, don't you? It was only two weeks ago, or that, uh, very soon after his death. I kind of wrote something on that topic, and I felt very heavy about writing it and felt very heavy about the content of it for a few days and quite nervous that he basically fell out. Was so that he fell out with so many of his teammates and so many of the people around Victorian cricket because he could be a difficult personality. And there's a really telling moment in um, the interview that he did with Crash on Cricket Legends, where with tears in his eyes he said, "If he could, he'd go back and address the circumstances around his falling out with Merv Hughes." He mm. said, "We were like brothers, and they were." 
but they haven't spoken for 20 years before he died. He never got to fix that problem. Um, he had a similar falling out um, with Chuck Berry, but fortunately they kind of, they, they, they got over it. They built a new, you know, they, they reconnected some years down the track, but he had bitter falling out with his teammates. And, yeah, that that was that was a sadness yeah. around Dino's career, and and, a, and and proved to be an ongoing source of frustration to him because he could not get a look in at Cricket Victoria for any job. He he would have been a great T Twenty coach, perhaps. He certainly would have been worth a try. Oh, it would have been uh, great but, for the Big Bash just to have yeah. that sort of character coaching a team. So it's, um, you know, but he brought a lot of that on himself with his pig headedness. And uh, his lack of self-awareness and the way he treated uh, his teammates at, at, in those last years of his career. And, um, and that's a sadness. And, and I, think, I, I think he realised that later. And ha- had he lived longer, hopefully he would have repaired some of those relationships. But, uh, yeah, it, it's a salutary lesson to everybody really, isn't it, that uh, there are some things a little bit more important than your career and getting your way and winning. And I, I still hear sportsmen all the time say, you know, it's not about making friends and you know, no one remembers X or Y. They remember your average. Well, you know, when you, yeah, there's more to it than that. And if, if you don't come out of the game with friends, I really, I, that, that's, that's a great concern, isn't it? Yeah. There's, there are, there are a few cricketers who have finished their career like that. And um, I'm not saying that Dino didn't have friends in cricket. He did, but not among his – not among his – there weren't many among his Victorian colleagues and comrades at the time. But AB stuck with him. AB loved him. They were, they were a really tight pair. And isn't that interesting? You know, it was AB that – it was him that – Brought the the sort of rock and roll to AB's cricket team. It was it was AB who nearly killed him in the draft. Um, but AB adored him, and yeah, and and I think a lot of us on on the tour adored him because he was great company, great company. And just to wrap that up, so what I was saying before is, you know, I don't think he and Bob Simpson got on well towards the end of Dean's Test career, and that probably what. Um, cost Dean Jones' test spot. But interesting, you know, you mentioned Dean Jones' interview with Crash. He said to Crash, I can complain all I like, but the Australian test team, you know, won, only lost three test series in the next 10 years after I was dropped. So they got it right. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was that was part of the issue, wasn't it? Yeah, you, yes, you are a very good player, but tell me which, which place in that team do you deserve? Mm. Uh, the Australian side was so good for so long. They probably could have had me in there and they would have only lost three series. Um, they, were, <laughs> they weren't that good. They wouldn't, they wouldn't have even lost three with you in there. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Legendary, <laughs> legendarily squandered your talent. It would have been interesting to see how Mark Taylor would have got on with Dean mm. as a captain. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, he and AB were fine, but maybe with Mark it would have been a different case. Maybe. All right, so um, moving on from um, Dean Jones. Now, I'll disclose to the listeners about this one. Obviously, you've worked for Channel 7 and you're employed by News Limited, so I know um, you're in a sticky situation here. But just tell me, um, where do you think the, the, the – where are we at the moment with the dispute between Channel 7 and Cricket Australia? Uh, 
we're in a we're in a terrible place. I can tell you practically where we are um, physically. Uh, Channel Seven have taken it to a arbitration commission. Cricket Australia doesn't believe that that is the appropriate uh, forum for this to be worked out, um, but we'll probably cooperate. This involves uh, seven nominate five people, Cricket Australia nominate a group of people. Someone, someone from that pack from, is empanelled to make a judgment on the value of the rights. Um, that's all very well and good, but I think that even that if the person in that there makes a call that those rights are worth considerably less than they were before, Cricket Australia won't won't respect that judgment or that jurisdiction, and and we'll end up in court. Um, so it, it's awkward, and and as you say, I work for Seven, and I think Seven's coverage is great, and the people that work in sport at Seven are wholeheartedly committed. To they love Test cricket, they love the BBL. They want to make that product great on the television, but this is a squabble among accountants and boards and who knows what. And but and it, but it's ugly. It's 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 a really ugly and unfortunate thing to be happening on the verge of the summer. And you have to think that Seven are very desperate in this situation because they've made their own life difficult in the way that they've gone about this. I would have some sympathy for their sales force going out there to sell the BBL right now to advertisers. I mean, they do a great job. They've got Ricky hosting. You know, its ratings have been have been considerable. But um, you've had it talked down by your bosses. That 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 can't work very well, can it? It's a it's an odd, sad situation. Can they be promoting it as much as they want to? I mean, you say that they. That the, the those involved in cricket love the game, which I'm sure is true. But would there be a bigger push to promote cricket if everything was rosy um, between Channel Seven and Cricket Australia? Well, I mean, if you got it, you got to make the most of it, haven't you? I mean, you can't. They're not going to run dead. That would be ridic- That would be the most ridiculous thing on earth. Yeah. Um, you know, just cutting off your nose to. To spite your face, and I know that they're not running dead. They're, they're determined to do this this summer the same sort of just make this summer even better than previous summers. They have uh, have been in discussions with uh, about how they're going to do the, the the BBL and the tests, and how they're going to cover for la- lack of crowds and where they're going to be, what they're going to do that, and also I think it is in the contract that they have to respect. That, that they they provide so much promotion to cricket, but yeah, as far as I know, it's it's full steam ahead down there in the coal mine. Well, that's good to hear. What's going? Yeah, yeah. It just seems that that Channel Seven are using this crisis to really push their agenda hard now, and they feel that they overpaid for the TV rights, and and now they can really push to get a significant discount. I think the most galling thing, if you are Channel 7, is that you bought the BBL and everyone says, well, it was, expand, you know, they bought, it was expanded to get more money from, from the market. But both broadcasters have said they never really wanted an expanded BBL. That, that was what they got. Both have expressed dissatisfaction both years with the way the BBL has played out because there have been diminishing returns. There have been fewer people at the games, and I, I'm not 100% on the radio, so I think they might be down. But, but 
it had peaked and it's been dropping off both years of this contract. The BBL has not been as good as it has previously been. They have gone to Cricket Australia about it. Cricket Australia said, right, we're going to fix it. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to do that. We're going to do that. Uh, that's made them feel better. This summer's come around and, frankly, all of that's gone by, by the by and the BBL may be even further diminished. That's quite galling to the broadcasters. Um, and can you imagine sitting there, you paid all this money for cricket and for access to cricket, and um, then you watch, tune into Amazon Prime and see that Amazon Prime have had cameras in the dressing rooms? Mm. Um, can you imagine what it's like also to sit there and you know, say, we're going to clear up, you know, last summer they sent they sent the bloody Mate, you know, all their stars to India for a one day series in India in the middle of the BBL. They're sitting there now, they're watching Pat Cummins bowl to Steve Smith in, you know, what I was ridiculed for suggesting was the five most exciting balls ever or something. Pardon the hyperbole. The solution is so close, but it, but it, it never gets any closer. In fact, it looks, looks to be getting further away of getting those players in, getting the Australian stars in and playing. And it's not just that they don't get access to the Australian stars, it's that by expanding the league and not expanding the pay packet that went with it, they have diminished its attractiveness to international players. Um, Shane Watson said the other day, a lot of people said that as soon as they expanded the league, international players went off it. It used to be on every player had a bucket list, which was the IPL and the BBL. A lot of them have struck the BBL off that bucket list because it's, it's a pain in the asked to come down to Australia for that long for that little money at that time of year. It's extraordinary how three years ago it almost felt as though the BBL was catching the IPL and you could almost make an argument that they were almost bracketed as the two big tournaments. The gap between them now is so gargantuan. Surely that's going to have to result in a change. That The IPL is now like the NBA, that that's where everyone wants to play. This summer I know is unusual, but surely from next summer Cricket Australia is going to have to say at the very least... After the Sydney Test match, all the Australian players must be available for the IPL for the for the BBL. Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, if, if you paid if you'd paid a billion dollars between the two of you for the BBL and the cricket, that's you'd expect some solution like that, wouldn't you? And you'd be very frustrated at a, when money's tight. Yeah, uh, it is frustrating for Cricket Australia this summer. They were going to make changes for the Big Bash, but the COVID crisis has made it very difficult. So I have a lot of sympathy for Cricket Australia, but I also don't think they've done the – they should have offered some kind of discount and gone from there. Um, so- I, yeah, yeah. I, I have sympathy with Cricket Australia's position as well. I, I think they're proceeding as I, as I would if I was in their position. So, Pete, what are your thoughts about this upcoming summer? I know we don't have the international summer schedule, but I know what are you excited about? What are you looking forward to? Oh, cricket. <laughs> Proper cricket with a red ball. <laughs> Going to the cricket. Uh, all those things. You know. <laughs> Doesn't take much to excite us these days, does it? Yeah. Um, and, God, uh, I mean, we're... we're the prospect of India v Australia, two test teams, I reckon, at the peak of their powers. We saw that Indian bowling attack last time they were here, but we didn't have this Australian batting attack. I'm really excited by that. Oh, God, you know, everyone's on the Manus bandwagon now, but uh, I just watched him bat in that first Shield game. I'm really excited to see what, what can, what, where Manus is going to mm. go this summer. I reckon he's in, you know, like, 
great players. They have those patches of form. The, the, the truly great players have a couple of years where they just have this sublime patch. You know, who, what, what's his name? Huss had it very early in his career because he was a late bloomer. Punter had it like after they moved him up to three where he had that ridiculous patch where he was almost averaging around 70 or something, yep. wasn't he? Yeah. Uh, we've seen it with all the greats. Marnus looks like he's hit that. And Smithy obviously has had it too. Puff had it as well. Marnus looks like he's there. He's just and, and I mean, a bit frustrating that Marnus hasn't played cricket in the last six months because I just reckon he, he, he's wasting some incredible form. But uh, I was relieved to see the way he batted when he came back up, came back into the Sheffield Shield. It's just amazing that he is now. It's possible that this summer he could overtake Smith as being regarded as our best batsman and the best batsman in the world. At the start of last summer, I we, we had some hot takes, and my hot take was that Manus Labuschagne would prove to be a flash in the pan and would fade away. <laughs> so um, <laughs> I got that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Good on you for admitting it, Paul. Good on you. Yeah. Uh, Pete, do you think we'll see um, the Boxing Day test go ahead at the MCG? Out of what's your percentage? You know, what, what's your percentage? Chance of it going ahead, sixty. Yeah, going ahead. Sixty percent chance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know. It's crystal, crystal balls are kind of useless at this point, aren't they? We see how difficult it is. In you know, what just last week, the New South Wales players are sitting around, twiddling, and you all know this better than me, man, is um, twiddling their thumbs when everyone panics and says, "Get to Adelaide now before they close the borders." So they've rushed to Adelaide. But Victoria, meanwhile, have gone through three different changes of location uh, where they were first going to stay at the pub at the ground, I think. Then they were going to stay at the Pullman. Now they've ended up with the international travellers at another hotel where they're in total lockdown. So overnight that's all changed and that's meant that the first game's been cancelled and Brisbane gets a game cancelled and New South Wales are sitting around at the Exeter drinking basket pet. Press Shiraz waiting for their first game. Um, that, so just to put on that first round of Sheffield Shield was foiled at the last minute when things are getting better. I'm I'm damn nervous. I'm nervous about this Indian tour. The longer we don't have confirmation, the more nervous I get about it. Well, that's interesting. If you'd asked me four weeks ago, it's hundred percent. But you know, I'm kind of getting anxious about that. What's it's holding made it up? Me nervous. Well, what's making you? Know, I, I just assumed that it was. I'd never assumed it was anything other than 100% that they were coming. Well, Ganguly wants to bring like 400 people over. Yeah, that's 400 minus 300 and... Yeah, I think he wants to bring about 55. Minus 355, but pretty close, I reckon. <laughs> I think they're talking about 55 to 60 on the will be coming over and they'll be coming from the UAE and they'll be coming from India and they do that does not include family. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> bring a lot of people. They are bringing a lot of people, you know. And uh, one of the, someone in the sports department said to me this morning, "Well, you know, football codes they got they got it done." I said, "Well, nobody's had to bring in a team from overseas yet, have they? Or am I wrong on that?" Only the New Zealand Warriors, but that was a different case. They were kind of here and they just stayed, and they were here, yeah. and that was a the New was Zealand early women's day. team came in, and that's it. Oh, okay, so they've done that from New Zealand, but to bring in from the UAE and from India, you, you can see how difficult it's been. And that's been through so many changes. Obviously, ideally, they had wanted to do that in Perth, but then Perth's just been completely ridiculous in its demands or strident in its demands. Then they were going to do it in Adelaide, 
But this situation in Adelaide changed when the health minister apparently came back from um, holidays, hence the Victorian situation changing in the last few weeks or the demands on the Victorians. So they couldn't do it in Adelaide. So now they're looking at Brisbane. There's probably no chance they can come in here. I don't know if they did. When they do land, I'm going to be there and I'm going to kiss the ground in front of their face. <laughs> kiss Coley's I feet. Hope, yeah. Thank <laughs> God you're here. But then there's, this, then there's this voice of doom called um, Ben Horn, my dear friend Ben, saying, well, hang on a minute, guys. Virat Coley's got a baby too. Do you mm. reckon he's coming? Yeah, that's very, yeah. That's very worrying. It is worrying, isn't it? It's a genuine concern. We, we should they should set aside an entire hospital for for. Um... They should build a wing, the Coley wing, yeah. to deliver that. Yeah. child yeah. Yeah. over here, uh, so he can be Austra- so he can play for Australia. Yes, solutions. and then he could put a baggy green on. Fine. Um, well, um, Candace Warner had their third child over in, in London during the Ashes, didn't she? Well, there you go. He can play for the the, the, the young Warner can play for the Palms. Sure, they'd love that. He can play for the Palms, yeah. And um, he can play for us. Um, last one, yeah. last question before I let you go, Pete. Uh, D- Justin Langer uh, spoke about the fact that in the during the tour of England, he went through the sort of impending schedule for all the players and the IPLs and then the bubbles and and the sort of colour drained out of the players' faces. I- I'm just thinking we need to keep a track of. You know, the mental health of the players this summer, I think it's going to be far more taxing than maybe we realise. And, you know, what sort of state the players come back from the IPL in? Couldn't agree more. And um, and I think the colour drained from JL's face as well. I mean, I think the seriousness of it. I uh, tuned in to an ECB debrief in the middle of the night last week um, and their head, chief medical officer said... He says, flicking through his notes to try and get in the vicinity of it. I think he said, you know, I know he said, uh, that 30 days and that's it. You can only spend 30 days in a bubble and or then you've got to move on. He says, they have to get out of these bubble situations because financially and health-wise, they are just untenable. So you can't keep the players locked up for more than 30 days. We also had Jofra Archer say at the end of the summer, I haven't got another bubble left in me. I can't, you know, and that's, he's not coming down with the BBL because he just couldn't face the thought of coming down and being, you know, looking at the world, world you know, parting the curtains of a hotel to see what's going on in the world. Um, it's it's going to be a real issue, and I don't think there'll be a lot of sympathy for the players, but uh, it's... It's a serious situation. You know, um, a, a, a lot of them will come back from the IPL bubble. That's what was the best part of two and a half months, is it? And um, yep. three months, whatever it is, straight into the whatever it is, test bubble, one-day bubble that they're playing, the test bubble. This is a consideration already for the Victorians who are saying, A, we, have, we can't train for the first game because of this bubble, so they've had to cancel the first game. But then they've pointed to the fourth game that they're due to play and say, if we play that fourth game, we'll get we won't get a chance to go home before we go into a, a two month bubble for the BBL. Yeah, I reckon they so should just chuck the Victorians the out game. of the shield this summer. Do you? Yeah, just chuck them out. They're called whinging. You're, yeah, yeah. So in a few decades, you'll, you'll be right on. Well, anyway, I won't go there, but uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, so, and there'll be no sympathy for them. I heard a lot of New South Wales people say that yesterday, and WA people. 
Um, You've gone the full anyway, length, Manners, from um, yeah. signed Victorian anyway, cap to kick him out of the shield. <laughs> yes, that's anyway, right. I don't, I don't know how you work with this bloke every week, Paul. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was making a serious point there, and he's just done his sniping. <laughs> no, but but um, you're exactly right, and it affects the big bash because all the Aussie players that come out of, say, the test bubble at the end of the Indian series, a lot of them won't actually go into the big bash. They'll, they'll quite rightly want to go and see their, their family. Um, yeah. So, you know, it will if, it, these bubbles are going to affect, you know, what sort of play we see at all levels. Yeah, that's right. It, it's kind of a dead set issue. And, you know, and, that, and, and what happens after that? I mean, they'll hardly get a chance to breathe. There's a Sheffield Shield bubble. So they'll be straight back into the Sheffield Shield. There's potentially a tour of South Africa, isn't there? I think there's yep. a tour of New Zealand. Yeah. It, it's going to be a very difficult summer. And it's going to be interesting to see how it affects performance. Isn't it? I, I I think that watching the um, Aussie rules as I do, there have been some players who just didn't show up this year, some very good players who didn't show up, and there'll be certain characters who do not respond very well to this situation. Yeah, I just get the feeling though with cricketers and having spoken to them after that New Zealand game and more mm. and more of them that they're not as affected by the crowds as other sports. The fact that you know. That they, so much cricket is played with no crowds um, that it's not a huge shift. Uh, well, that's a, but that's only one element of it. Is it what well, I'm saying that their performance will, could be affected by their mental state? Oh, yeah, well, absolutely. There will be certain characters there. But, but the, the, the effect of the crowd, um, you know, um, will be more, t- I think it's more telling perhaps um, in the shorter forms of the game, perhaps, or. You're right. Certain players don't, well, say they don't need the crowd and don't hear the crowd, but there's those moments when the crowd gets behind a bowler and he's got his back up, you know, he's got wind in his sail or her sail. Um, the crowd does have an effect on games, doesn't it? It certainly has an effect. I noticed watching the, the UK series, they got away with the test without a crowd, but um, the shorter form of the game needs a lot more attention from the broadcasters if you're watching it at home because... God, it's twice as boring watching people hit fours and sixes in the um, in a T Twenty match if there's no reaction from the crowd. Yeah, I th- the IPL's been good though, but you're definitely right; it does affect the. Show yeah, well, they put a bit of effort in. Yeah, yeah. Look, I've had a lot of chats with the IPL producers, um, and they they have really tried hard. You know, they've got they've got certain soundtracks. They've got soundscapes um, that are devoted to in that are tailored to individual batsmen. Believe it or not, if you, you listen closely, and I haven't, but I'm, I'm unreliably informed that say when MS Dhoni bats, you will hear them chanting his name in the crowd. Yeah, That's I've a, noticed oh, that, that a bit. Was the intention? Yeah, yeah, I, I think they've done it really well. I was skeptical about the sound affecting of it, and then I thought that England had it right with just the murmur. But I, I've been impressed by the the, IB, the IPL that if you don't think about it too much, you forget that there isn't a crowd there, actually. Yeah, it kind of needs it, doesn't it? It's kind of like a laugh track in comedy. Yeah, I need that as well. It I works. never know when to yeah. laugh without yeah. the laugh track. I'm, I'm genuine there. Like, <laughs> people people decry laugh tracks. I've, like, I've watched shows that I thought were dramas and then been told afterwards they were comedy because they didn't have a laugh track. And I'm like... <laughs> no, no, no. If, 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 you, if, if you didn't use a, a laugh track for Andrew in this program, I mean, the listeners would have no idea what a funny guy he is. That was the yeah. laugh track, actually. <laughs> yeah, you pressed play on the laugh track. <laughs> 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 
All right, Pete. Well, on that note, we'll let you get back into it. Um, go to the Australian.com.au for all of Pete's excellent work. And actually, the Daily Telegraph, you're leading things today with board talk. So, um, Pete's all over the place. Thank you for joining us on the show. Did that get a run in the telly, did it? I haven't had a chance to see well, it. It was the first story. Ian Healy potentially to join the Australian Cricket Board. Good yarn, that. He'd go all right, wouldn't he? Well, we talked about the story of the day, and you didn't even ask me about it. Well, you know, administration stories are click, fast forward, click, fast forward. Ian bloody Healy, mate. (laughs) Legend, legend. All right, well, take care, Pete, and we'll catch up soon. Thanks for joining us. Take care, guys. Thanks, Pete. Bye. That was Pete Lawler from The Australian, and we'll be back with the cricket headlines. Welcome back to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I'm your co-host, Andrew Menzel. I'm with Paul Dennett, and it is time for the Cricket Headlines, brought to you by Piccolo Podcasts. Well, Paul, as we touched on with Pete Lawther, the Sheffield Shield has started. Uh, thrilling to see some domestic cricket back on, but really good news for the game here that uh, KO, which is the digital sports app for Fox Sports, is now going to be... Uh, telecasting the or streaming all the Shield games this summer. So they last summer they were just a broadcast on cricket.com.au, but uh, KO is going to take those streams and even a Fox Cricket, the cable channel, will actually be broadcasting three games um, on on Fox Sports. So you will just be able to flick on and the Shield will be there if you're a casual observer. I think this is fantastic for the domestic game. I've said this for a long time that the Shield needs more uh, exposure and to be televised more. And, you know, KO has half a million subscribers and it's a great service. And, you know, for someone like me that's a cricket lover, you can practically go on now and watch the replay of a whole Sheffield Shield day. Like, I don't have to watch it live. I could go home tonight and what I've missed today, I can just put on and watch, you know, back-to-back Shield cricket. Yeah, you're right. It's uh, There is an appetite there uh, amongst the public for more Sheffield Shield cricket to be broadcast on, on sort of um, mainstream platforms. Back in the old days when ABC Radio used to have it, I would often... Um, tune in on a weekend to listen to Grandstand, even if there's no test cricket going on. And I'd happily listen to broadcasts of The Shield. And um, that's kind of been missed a little bit um, in recent years. So it's good to get it back into into the mainstream. going to be interesting to see what they do with this Sheffield Shield season. Um, the latest I've heard is that it is actually not going to be a full season, that they won't be able to get all 10 rounds in, that we might see an eight or nine round competition. Um, at the moment, some teams are going to play four rounds before the Big Bash, but New South Wales and Queensland will just be playing three matches and Victoria two. So, uh, you know, Victoria are going to be two matches behind some teams. So I just don't think they're going to be able to catch up. Yeah, so that's what I'm hearing. It's going to be slightly shortened um, and they'll play the rest after the Big Bash. Pete Lawler touched on there that Victoria were due to play two days after they came out of quarantine, but they've asked for that to be moved, which it has been moved. I have, I think Victoria may be a whinging a bit too much about this one. Uh, it is a tough situation, and th- the points they brought up were that the young fast bowlers in the Victorian squad weren't getting enough um, you know, practice in and enough bowling into their you know, bodies before playing a Shield game. So I guess the sports scientists know more than me, but I think given the circumstances, 
They should have just sucked it up and played the game. And, uh, yeah, yeah, that's what I think. No, I, I tend to disagree. I think that from what you've told me, that they were given um, in groups of four, they were allowed to have 55 minutes in the nets, uh, 55 minutes fielding practice and 55 minutes in the gym. So really a group of four having basically an hour to do your core skills of batting and bowling, I don't think that's enough uh, in preparation for, for the game. You've always been a massive advocate for the shield. I think you've, you've got to show it the respect. If it was um, Tiger Woods getting only a very limited time in the lead-up to a major to warm up, he would protest. He'd say, no, I can't go into a major like this. So you either got to say it's a premium competition or it's not. So I, I have no problem with them saying that, especially when you factor in the possibility of injury for the fast bowlers. Yeah, I just think in these unprecedented times, people have to make sacrifices and you're not going to get ideal preparation. The fact is Victoria are coming from a hot spot. That's no one's fault, but it's just the reality. And I just think they should have sucked it up. But I guess the only thing that I think to me that sort of is more pertinent is the fact that you'd, you'd have Victoria taking on some teams that have maybe had a lot more practice. Yeah, and, and if I was, sorry, go on. Less concerning than the injuries is more the disadvantage of maybe Victoria playing someone who's just who's just had a lot more time to uh, train for the game. Yeah, and I, but I could look at it from a batting point of view as well. And if I'm a, a you know a batsman who needs lots and lots of hours in the nets, and suddenly. I'm asked to go out there and face fast bowling at 140 kilometres per hour. There's a fear factor and a scare factor of, of you know, you, you need to be properly prepared. You can't take these things lightly. So uh, I, I see where you're coming from. Strange times, you've got to do strange things. But I, I think that... Uh, chuck them out of the comp then. Make them sit this one out. <laughs> it wasn't funny when you said it to Laura. No, it's, it's, it's not it's funny, funny now. <laughs> I think they should chuck them out for a year. Five-team comp. <laughs> right, let's get into the shield, though. So... so we haven't had this happen for 10 years. In November 2010, Mitch Johnson took five wickets and scored 100 in a Shield game. Played The last player to do that before Mitch Johnson was Steve Smith when he was bowling. That was in 2010. On day two of the Shield, or day three actually, day three of the Shield, we had two players do it within an hour of each other. Michael Nisa and Ashton Agar both scored hundreds. Nisa's first, Agar's first in five years coming off the back of taking five wickets each. Phenomenal performance. Question I'd ask on that, is there any possibility that Michael Nisa could get an opportunity playing for Australia uh, in that all-rounder slot? Um, you, you'd look at it and say, well, his batting's not good enough, but his, his batting average of 24 and a half uh, at first-class level before this game, that compares um, reasonably favourably with the sort of numbers that um, Mitch Marsh has produced. Is he any <laughs> chance of, of, of playing at number six? I don't think so. I don't think Michael Nisa is a number six, but... He's certainly someone that could come in at eight or nine and play a really good role in that lower middle order. All right, other notable performances. Manus Lobuchane made 106. <laughs> Did I get it right then? No, absolutely. Oh, Couldn't have got it more wrong. Manus Labuchane made 167. He was dropped three times, twice in and over off Jackson Bird's bowling. Um, but, uh, yeah, he's put Queensland in a very strong position position against Tasmania. Tim Payne, the Australian captain, only made four. Usman Kawaja, trying to get back in the test side, only made four. Joe Burns, the incumbent test opener, made seven. And then in the other game, 
Uh, Ashton Agar partnered with Josh Inglis, the young WA keeper who made 153, not out. He's maiden first-class century. Great to see Inglis do well. Big fan of his batting. We saw him keep really well at the SCG last summer in a Shield game. His glove work is superb. Um, a, a Northern English import to Australia, born in uh, around Leeds, where I think, and uh, yeah, good to see him kick on. And Agar and English put put on. 266. Jake Retherworld made 100. Uh, your fan, your favourite, Sean Marsh, made 102 not out. Off 102 balls, mind you, as well. Yeah. Very so good going. He must be in the running for a test recall. Well, I've said it before, people, you might think I'm being crazy, but I, I object to the fact that they've ruled a line through him. He was picked more often than I would have picked him. He's not one of my favourite players, but they shouldn't rule a line through him. If he no. kept on scoring centuries, then I'd be the first to pick him. Excellent. I think you're alone in that one. Now, uh, we had a question from one of our listeners, Martin Lawrence. He's asked, what is your favourite Sheffield Shield moment? I'm going back to the mid-90s. You might guess this one, but it's when... Mark and Steve Waugh getting Yes, 464 at, at the Wacker. I remember that just so clearly, that partnership. Um, I don't think it was televised, but I was just following on the radio as these two just piled on the runs. And it was like front and back page of the paper. It was huge. What's your favourite moment? Well, obviously, it's it's um it's probably most people's favourite moment. Uh, twenty seven, twenty eight. Don Bradman's um, first over in Sheffield Shield cricket, facing Clary Grimmett, cracked him for two boundaries in his first over on the way to a century in his first game. Uh, Clary Grimmett did have the last laugh as he bowled South Australia to a one wicket victory. I think it was so. Nineteen twenty seven, twenty eight. Um, you know, doesn't get much better than that. We have really gone very contemporary for this segment, haven't we? You know, memories from the mid nineties, memories from the twenties. I uh, hope you enjoyed that, Martin. Uh, both of those memories will be before your time. But uh, go go and Google that four hundred and sixty four run partnership. It, just some of the most impressive dominant batting by the War Brothers I've ever seen. All right, now. From the Sheffield Shield to the IPL. And interesting, you know, it's the first time it's happened, Paul, when we've got the IPL going on with probably 15 or 20 Australian cricketers there and the Shield going on at the same time. Obviously, unprecedented times. How are the Aussies going? Looks like Stoinis has done very well with the bat. That's what my take would be. I guess the good thing about Stoinis is he's what actually... He's been playing a different role for the Delhi Capitals, been coming in down the order where he's traditionally struggled for Australia in T20 cricket. Mm. And he's actually done very well. He's been hitting many more boundaries. And I think this this competition will be good for him because, you know, the IPL, there's no mucking about. If if, it's, if you don't perform your role, you're gone ski yeah. and they bring someone else in. Yeah, he's averaging 35 and a strike rate of 175 from seven innings. So very impressive numbers. Glenn Maxwell, the opposite, averaging 15 with a strike rate of 95. So that's um, that's not good to see. Steve Smith. Can I just interrupt there? Maxwell the other night uh, was brought in too late to a game that Kings Eleven were chasing in. But he came and he should have been brought up. You would have been so frustrated. They sent in some youngster to bat ahead of Maxwell. He couldn't hit it off the square. But Maxwell came in and it came down to him needing six off the last ball for a super over. And typical Maxwell style, he had a beautiful lofted cover drive and it bounced an inch before the rope. Like it, it was so close, you actually needed the replay to see whether it hit the rope first or the the ground first. But a very very close run thing. Yeah, I mean, I go on about it like a beat, like a broken record. But the only place for Glenn Maxwell to bat in short form cricket is to open when the field restrictions are in. All this nonsense of having him floating, open with him, he'll he'll revolutionise the game. 
Open and, in all forms. Exactly. Um, I would do that. Bring in him for Burns. Warner and Maxwell, test openers. Um, Smith, looks to me like he's trying to score too quickly. Uh, I could be wrong there. He's got... He's averaging 23, a strike rate of 140. And the times I've watched him, he's looked like he's been batting really, really well. But it's like he's trying to prove this point, like I am a big hitter. And I I think he he doesn't need to quite do that. He's he's sort of uh, idling away, ready to explode, but hasn't exploded yet in the IPL. Yeah, that's right. He's been captaining the Rajasthan Royals. He opened the batting in a couple of games with Joss Butler to start the tournament. Did well. Since then, he he hasn't quite um, got going. He's been run out once and... Yeah, I, I think there's more to come from Smith. His Royals team look pretty good. Stokes has just come back. To, I, I love seeing this, and Archer's in that side. You've got Steve Smith, you know, he's opening the batting with Butler. He's captaining Archer. He's captaining Stokes. I find these dynamics fascinating. You know, that you know, last year Archer, you know, hit Smith on the head. Mm. Uh, he was down at Lords. They're, they're in the middle of this you know, hard-fought Ashes battle. A year later... They're playing together in the IPL. It is just so interesting to watch. And I, I love that. And I love watching Warner and Bairstow open the batting together. Because I just wonder what the hell they're saying to each other, you know, between overs. Bairstow's like, you're an idiot. And Warner's like, you're an idiot. Um. I think that teammates, <laughs> that it cleanses things. That you can be um, – we saw, almost saw it with Shane Warne that um, he would be very, very – damning with faint praise of Adam Gilchrist and talking up Ian Healy, then the minute that Warren and Gilchrist were sort of uh, slotted to work together, suddenly um, Gilchrist's career has gone up in, in Warren's estimation. That that, that comradeship that teammates bring it. Warney also did it with KP. Warney was captaining Kevin Peterson prior to his test debut at Hampshire and talking him up, this guy's got to play test cricket. And then as soon as KP's in the side, well, Warney's just completely attacking him on the field, like <laughs> verbal assault. Now, uh, the... You're a big fan of saying this IPL tournament is has taken cricket to a new level. Um, that this is just about the best you've ever seen. Am I putting words in your mouth there? No, not at all. It is just truly phenomenal. You've got the best players on the field, but added to that, you've got these sublime coaching staffs. Every team is just st- you know. Rajasthan Royals have just employed Shane Warne to just come and sit in the stands yeah. and walk around and talk to the team. I mean, it is, it's everywhere. Ricky Ponting is the coach of the Delhi Capitals, Brendan McCullum. And then they've got all these assistants, Simon Kadich, all these fantastic people on the books. It's incredible. So I sort of hinted at this when we were talking to Pete, but does this bring about a change in the strategy for Cricket Australia? Because when the Big Bash came in, it was ideal was – we have a fun, breezy summer holiday sport to get uh, new fans into the game, especially youngsters, and we don't really care if the big players aren't going to be there because it's not about that. And I, that worked. But now the IPL has taken it to a level where, as I was saying with Pete, it's like the NBA. You have to be there. Does the BBL want to compete with that, um, or are we going to continue to sort of be a, a boutique little league? I think it needs to start to say, okay, the strategy worked, it's no longer working. We could probably never eclipse or reach the, the IPL, but let's at least try. What do you reckon? Oh, it has to be. And and uh, David Barham uh, was commissioned by Cricket Australia to look into how the Big Bash could be improved. And he talked about these things. You know, we need more international players. We need more of the Australian stars available. And it just has to happen. Uh, it's interesting, though, that people say the Big Bash is too long. Well, the IPL is the same length as the Big Bash. For eight teams, um, home and away season, 14 games per side. Uh, so, you know, 
is the length of the Big Bash the problem or the quality? Because I think that, that, you know, the quality in the IPL can sustain that length, but can the Big Bash? The big other problem is that the IPL doesn't have that deadline that everyone seems to have here of the end of the Christmas holidays and the, the that everyone's attention, well, except for you and me, is suddenly switching to the football codes, whereas India... Attention is on cricket 365 days of the year. They don't have that same need to get it finished um, by the end of January. Hey, uh, what but sorry, a- to, just to ahead. finally answer that question, I was always a big fan of a 14-game big bash, but if shortening the tournament to 10 games means you can have a lot more stars available from overseas and local stars and play the tournament a little bit you know, in a briefer format, then maybe it's the way to go because they have to improve the quality and and it has to come from somewhere. Reluctantly, I completely agree. So I think tonight I'm going to have to go back through about 15 episodes of this and delete stuff that I've said. Yeah, just go back and just delete. Yeah, because I've been saying... delete like the whole Big Smash Cricket podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I was a big advocate for 14 games. You know, I spoke passionately about it and um, I thought quite eloquently... But if they do want 14 games, then just a lot more money has to come into the comp to pay better players to be here. Yeah. That, that's that's the simple solution. And that speaks to that mindset change that they might need to make, that that wasn't what the the BBL was meant to be. Maybe it's what it needs to be going forward. And, and finally on the BBL, I've said it before, the Australian Cricketers Association does no favours in this um, area. I'm not going to rehash it all, but, you know, there, there are... Everyone is just primarily interested in what benefits them, and some of these things will not benefit Australian cricketers, so they don't tend to support it. Yeah, you're talking about we need to get more international stars in there, and I, I agree with that. Now, the going up just finally on, on the Australian players, looks like uh, Finch has had a quietish sort of tournament. Uh, Warner a better one, but maybe not as explosive as he's been in the past. Finch and Warner have been good. Uh, Warner's been very consistent. Uh, Finch scored some runs overnight. So I think they've both been pretty good. And then the bowling. Cummins and Pattinson getting a lot of overs. Um, Pattinson getting a, a good wickets. Uh, pretty decent economy rate. Um, breakout tournament for him, or is I that going Pattinson, too far? Pattinson's been one of the very best players, I think. He's, he's a late replacement uh, for a player. Was it? Kane Richardson, he replaced. I know he replaced an Australian at the last minute who pulled out, uh, but he's been very good. Cummins, obviously, the, being paid three million bucks for this season, so a lot of pressure on him. He's bowled well, batted well, uh, so I, I think they've been pretty good. Obviously, the the frustrating one was Mitch Marsh going down in his first over yeah. of the tournament. And then also Zampa hasn't really had much of an opportunity. When he has had an opportunity, has been hit around a little bit. That's a bit of a concern for Australia, given that there are so many premium white ball tournaments coming up in India in the next in the next few years. Yeah, that's right. He's got you know got a tough task trying to get into that RCB side. Also, Josh Phillip, he's not playing. Alex Carey's just come into the Delhi side for Rishabh Pant, who's injured, so we might see a bit more of Carey. But but I've got to think. Any player that goes over there, probably, you know, it's negated a little bit by the conditions due to COVID, but even just being there with all those stars and and talking uh, must be great for your game. Yeah. Also, Josh Hazelwood has only got the one game for for CSK. Um, I presume that's because they've got that that limit of four international players Mm. that they can put in there. But he bowled four overs, none for 28. Um, Oh, geez, if, if I'm picking the side, he's in my side all the time. Yeah, I agree. I found it really amusing, Paul, and I know you will as well because you love Twitter probably more than me, is that Ravi Ashwin has now used Twitter to officially warn Aaron <laughs> Finch about man-catting. He said, now he's, he's tweeted out, let's make it clear, first and final warning for 2020, 
I am making it official and don't blame me later on. And then he tags in his coach, Ricky Ponting, hashtag run out, hashtag non-striker, at Aaron Finch. And I, and then he's tagged Aaron Finch but said they're good buddies, by the way, just before he's about to man-cat him. So I love this, uh, using social media to warn people. I think people should do it more. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if does he have to do another warning in 2021? <laughs> does this uh, only last for a year? Yeah, oh, I think it's a great tweet. Um, Ashwin's, um, he's a smart guy. He's very, he's quite witty on Twitter as well. Oh, yeah, that's fantastic stuff. All right, moving on from the IPL, uh, the Australian women's team has smashed New Zealand since our last show. We had Sophie Molyneux before their series against the Kiwis. They've, they won both series three zip and in the process, in the 50 over format, have equaled Ricky Ponting's team record of 21 ODI wins in a row, which is a fantastic achievement. But, but what stands out to me about this side, Paul, is the way they've turned things around. And for people that sort of are a bit further back from the Australian women's cricket team, probably don't know this, but, you know, three or four years ago, it seemed like the other teams were catching up. The West Indies beat Australia in the T20 final in 2016. Then in 2017, India beat Australia in the World Cup semi-final, a heartbreaking loss for the Australian women's cricket team who, who missed out on the chance to play in the final at Lords against England. And at that point, it seemed like Australia was coming back to the pack. But then the Australian women's cricket team, um, senior players and coach Matthew Mott came together and thought they needed to turn the team around. How they were going to do it was they were going to play a more fearless brand of cricket. He felt that they weren't backing their talent enough and they needed to just basically cut loose and back, you know, this the, the tremendous players that are in the team. And and once they sort of abandoned um, this sort of more conservative approach they had um, in those two tournaments and were, were more fearless, they've not only gone on this stunning 50-over run where they've won 21 in a row, they've won the Ashes twice and they've won two T20 World Cup so T20 World Cups, the one in the West Indies, the one here earlier this year. So this Australian women's cricket team is a real success story and born out of those losses makes it even more, um, I think, gratifying to watch. And with the depth of talent they've got, I mean, Matthew Mott was saying that it would be good to actually have a few Australia versus Australia A games. And I think that'd be a great idea that... Um, there could be some public interest in that as well to see some of the up and coming stars take on the the established stars when they are that far ahead of the rest of the uh, the rest of the cricketing world. I'd love to see that. I would love to see that as well. And you know, in the last fifty over game Australia played, Meg Lanning was out, Elise Perry still out with an injury, and they smashed New Zealand by a couple of hundred runs, two hundred and thirty odd runs. It was just a complete shellacking. So there's probably about you know, as you say at least two really good teams that could compete in that tournament. All right, final headline. I've got a big bash update. So, rumours, rumours, unconfirmed rumours, Paul, but I can say with some confidence that the Scorchers will not be playing any home games in this big bash season. They'll be on the road for the whole tournament. Also that we're going to see multiple hubs going on at the same time. So we'll have, you know, small groups of teams playing at one venue for a few days and then they'll move on. Uh, one of the, the big concerns for Cricket Australia is they can get in the hubs and they can play together, but they're worried about 
the standard of pitches as hubs go on too long if you're playing on the one ground. Uh, you know, you don't want to see, say, the fifth day in a hub, it's a couple, a wearing wicket and, you know, the bat, batters can't, you know, hit it off the square. So that's why I think there'll be short, sharp hubs where teams come together, play each other, maybe play each other twice and then move on. And I think you can sort of rule out Melbourne as a place where they'll have hubs. You can rule out Perth. So, you know, you fill in the gaps in between. That's where we'll see the games being played. Um, also, in the Big Bash, Alex Hales has confirmed he, w- he will be coming back and playing for the Sydney Thunder, which is great. All right, that is the Cricket Headlines brought to you by Piccolo Podcast. We'll take our final break, then we'll be back with Can't Let It Go. It's Can't Let It Go time on the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. Paul, you go first. Well, the opening game of the big of the IPL was reputed to have been watched by 200 million viewers. Jay Shah, the BCCI sec- secretary, tweeted out um, to that effect. I've got two thoughts on this. One, whatever the real number is, I'm sure it is gargantuan and it reflects, as we've been discussing through this podcast, just how far the IPL has uh, become the, the dominant tournament. But I do have a bit of a bugbear that almost every time you hear um, audience figures all around the world, it's always inflated. You always hear that, you know, 4.8 billion people watch the Olympics opening ceremony and all this sort of nonsense. I'm yet to see an audited figure from the, the Broadcast Audience Research Council, BARC, from India. I'd love it if anyone could actually furnish me with a report that shows that there were 200 million viewers because there are only 200 million households in India with access to TV, according to, to Wikipedia. The average people in household is 4.8, so it's eminently possible that 200 million people were watching that game. It does seem high, though, so I'd love to see some hard evidence of it. Well, IPL, Paul's put you on notice. <laughs> 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 All right. I can't let it go. I've got a couple, actually, as always. Uh, firstly, the the Women's Big Bash League is fast approaching, just a couple of weeks away. That's fantastic. Elise Perry's looking good to return for the Sixers. She said she wants to keep bowling because she doesn't un- think she'll be contributing as much to the team if she's just playing as a batter. Of course, that makes sense, but I would just point her towards someone like Steve Waugh, who was an all-rounder for a, a large part of his career, and then last five years really focused on the batting and if Perry could average 50 plus in all forms of cricket with the bat I'd be happy if she didn't bowl yeah but that implies that stopping bowling is going to help her batting which is there's no chance that'll be the case well she can't she can't make runs if she's injured that's true yeah um although war towards the end sort of uh, started bowling a bit again especially when he was trying to keep his spot in the one day side um you know I I think maybe Steve War from history should look at Elise Perry and maybe should have bowled a bit more um, uh, in in the um, early 2000s. Steve Waugh's on notice there. <laughs> and, from, and from history as well. <laughs> yes. The past Steve Waugh's on notice. <laughs> yeah. All right, and finally, um, I guess, you know, I've touched on it before, but, you know, I've been a bit down, you know, looking ahead to this cricket season and just it's going to be so different and there's going to be much less opportunity to get out there and watch the cricket. But, you know, this week I was at the New South Wales cricket season opener and it was a really hopeful occasion. They, they started to talk about what the Big Bash is going to look like and what domestic cricket we're going to see. And I, I started to cheer up because I think we will get a, a good cricket season ahead of us. It's obviously going to be different. It's not going to be the same. But uh, there's a lot of optimism around New South Wales cricket and that kind of rubbed off on me. 
at the opener, did they have any sort of highlights from last season or anything else that gave a bit of a flavour to the... <laughs> well, they did have a highlights package, and the fact that my voice was kind of um, very prominently featured in those highlights might have also helped cheer me up as well. <laughs> you didn't have it in the notes that, to ask you that, but I thought you might enjoy me asking you it. <laughs> it was pretty good how you hear my voice booming across the SCG. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. You're the, the voice of New South Wales cricket, Menace. That's right. Sorry, Jack Clifton, if you're listening. All right, well, that's it for this edition of Cricket Unfiltered. Uh, we're back in studio, which means we're still sort of working out the cast. Jaleesa is still going to come in sometimes, but she's deep into NRL stuff at the moment, so uh, hopefully we'll catch up with her soon. Paul, thanks for coming in. Pleasure as always, Menace. Goodbye, listeners. <laughs> 